you know, going along to get along to be popular. Uh, that's never been my thing. If somebody's being mistreated, um, I'm going to be that individual to to speak up. And, and that's not a popular place to be in. Oftentimes you're going to find yourself standing alone, but I do it again. You're listening to the Black and Blue Podcast, a discussion and celebration of the roles of African Americans and other minorities in U.S. law enforcement. Your host on the Black and Blue Podcast is Dale Peters, a law enforcement professional with over 20 years experience in the business. Hop on board this Black and Blue train of interviews, current events, and pop culture conversations. So get ready. The Black and Blue Podcast is coming at you right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Black and Blue Podcast. How you guys doing out there? My name is Dale. I'm the host. Thank you for joining me here today. Uh, I've got a very special guest for you today. She is the special agent in charge of the uh, Atlanta office of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. She's got that 25 years with that with that agency. Everybody, please help me welcome in Trabor Randall. Morning, ma'am. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing uh, fairly well, considering all that's going on around us. Yes. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a good day to be above ground. And uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's first get into, uh, you know, COVID-19. How how has that hit your city, your state and your agency in particular? Well, obviously, we're in Georgia, Metro Atlanta, particularly uh, where my office is, where my headquarters is, although I have a statewide responsibility. Um, It's been wild. It's been uh, crazy. You know, um, it's impacted us on various levels, not only just being, you know, public safety and having to change how you interact with the public. Um, My agency specifically has done uh, trainings just based on COVID-19 and conducting interviews with witnesses and how to do that safely. So it's kind of changed the way uh, we do policing, you know, as you know it. Um, One of the things about our agents in particular, we never know where we're going to end up, you know, at or what type of scenes we're going to respond to. So the PPE portion, we were pretty well equipped, unlike some other agencies. And we didn't have to scramble to look for, you know, masks or, or gloves or you know, Tyvex, if you needed it, all of our folks are pretty well equipped. So we were prepared in that instance. But, um, you know, some of the the activities that I'm responsible for, I have a mandate by law to provide training, for example, for law enforcement around the entire state as it relates to child death investigations. And we basically had to shut that down. It came to a standstill. Um, The end of February, you know, March, April, May, we basically were at a standstill because you couldn't safely gather with large groups. So now everybody's kind of trying to figure out, you know, you know, how do we go about testing the waters, you know, kind of putting that tiptoe out there to see um, what the response is going to be. Are people going to show up? Are they going to want to attend your trainings anymore? Are they going to be afraid of those those large gatherings? You know, how do you you know, effectively implement social distancing? Do you ask a bunch of cops to let me scan your forehead before you come into this, 
this training space, you know, do you make them wear masks for an eight hour training? It's just uh, uh, logistically, it's it's really a challenge, you know, to be quite honest with you and and having things there that they need that you may not normally have, you know, having the sanitizer and, you know, having a Clorox wipe. So they'll all you want people to feel uh, safe you know, when they come back into your spaces again. So it's definitely had an impact. Um, Personally, I've had several friends um, who have been, uh, become sick with the virus. Um, A lot of friends with the local police department, um, you know, which is no secret. They were advertising the numbers out in New York um, and also Atlanta Police Department, which is an agency we work very closely with um, but with our agency, we fared very well. We've had less than ten cases throughout the agency. So some of the things we implemented earlier, if you don't have to be sitting around in your field office, don't you know work from home and, and limit your exposure to individuals who may be sick as well as yourself. Right, right. So Georgia Bureau of Investigation (GBI) for our audience, who are who are you guys, and what do you guys do? Well, I'm glad you asked because I get that question so much. People see us with our uniforms on and they'll want to know, you know, well, well, what is the GBI? So I always start by asking them, what state are you from? Um, Because that's going to differ. If they're from Florida, that's going to be FDLE, you know, and they'll say, ah, I do know what FDLE uh, is. If they're from, you know, South Carolina, I'm going to say, you're familiar with SLED? And then it kind of clicks for them. So um, a lot of states have what you call, they'll have their state police. You know, California has the highway patrol um, for the, the the CHIPS officers that just deal with the highway. And then they have an investigative arm. Well, some states have combined that effort. So the state troopers and the kind of coat and tie investigators live underneath one agency, you know, as a, um, you know, state police. But in Georgia, Uh, They started out that way and then they were able to split off into two sister agencies. And one is the Georgia State Patrol and the other is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So we're the investigative arm um, of that. Uh, We the troopers are separate, but there was a time where you could either be an investigative special agent or you could be a trooper many years ago. So now we're housed in two different buildings, but we're still uh, state basically state police. Okay. And how large is your division, GBI? Uh, Well, our particular division, the agency has three components. So, you know, some places they have the state crime lab and they're the ones that test all of the narcotics. If somebody has a a DUI test, that that blood work is going to come to our lab, our biology section, and and they're going to be able to determine what was in an individual system. So we have the state lab, the state laboratory. We have the state uh, crime computer, if you will, Georgia Crime Information Center. And then we have the investigative division, and that's going to be the gun toters, uh, like myself. And um, we are less than 300 sworn um, that basically, you know, deal with the entire state. Wow. And what kind of investigations do you guys handle for the state? Well, we like to, um, we talk about our core mission. We deal with um, serious violent felonies. 
Um, we also have a, a very vested interest in crimes against children and the elderly. And then basically you have everything in between. So depending on where the field office is, similar to FBI, you know, for the for the nation. Um, but in Georgia, you have the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and uh, the places where we're probably the busiest. It's going to be those smaller jurisdictions that don't necessarily have the manpower, the expertise to do some of the complex investigations. Um, um, so that could be the child molestations, you know, the homicides, uh, political corruption. And uh, in recent years, we, you know, we, so to speak, are the ones that police the police. If you ask who does that, who's responsible for that in Georgia, it would be our agency. Um, we are investigating just about 100 percent of any officer involved shooting. So the use of force incidents that have sparked all of the outrage around the country when those happen in Georgia, whether they spark outrage or not, um, we are responsible for conducting those investigations. So we run the whole gamut just depends on what part of the state you're in. Um, determines uh, the high number of cases. Like in Metro, obviously, the office that covers Metro Atlanta, they work a ton of use of force cases involving officers, a ton of political corruption and things of that nature. Uh, Whereas, again, like I said, maybe south of Atlanta, they're going to be doing, you know, I'll say no homicide is regular, but not something that's going to be high profile. It's going to be the expertise that they have to help local agencies that may only have one or two detectives come in and make sure that those cases are solved. Crimes against children, crimes against the elderly, and obviously sexual exploitation of children. We have an entire unit that's just dedicated to cyber crimes. Okay. And then when you're talking about use of force investigations and homicides, do you work alongside the agency or do you guys come in and take it over? You know, it just depends on what the request is. So the other thing that's kind of unique about us is that we're an assisting agency. So sometimes, again, the public doesn't understand. So I appreciate any opportunity like this to kind of explain to them how it works. Um, We have to be requested. So typically you're going to have the chief or the sheriff or the district attorney who's the the prosecutor uh, for that area. Um, You can have the attorney general all the way up to the governor actually request us to come in and assist with an investigation or take that investigation over completely. So it really ranges. But typically these agencies, what you see now, um, it's standard operating procedure. If their officer discharges the firearm and someone is injured, the chief or the sheriff, the agency head is going to ask us to come in and do an independent investigation, which is really a great thing because that's pretty much what the what the public wants and what they need to see these days. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been there how long again? Twenty 25 years uh, as a professional agent. Uh, Prior to that, I was a deputy. uh, So I had a little taste of, you know, driving around in in a marked patrol car with lights on top and and wearing the polyester uniform. (laughs) I did that for a little bit. Uh Uh, Then decided that I wanted to, you know, I had some aspirations to go at least at the highest level that I could within the state and not having to move, you know, from coast to coast, if you will. Right. So, so you're from the Georgia Atlanta area or where are you from? Is it I'm original? not actually. I'm from up north. I'm a Yankee. Oh, uh, I've been down here so long that I've acquired that accent, you know, but I uh, 
I, I, I'm a transplant, you know, I don't tell a lot of my friends in Georgia that. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to Georgia? You know, family, family, like many others. Uh, Georgia has a lot of military towns. And I was a little sister and, and my big sister and her new husband were, uh, in a, you know, a military family. I decided to come to Georgia and attend a university near a military town and um, decided that I wanted to stay. So that's that's how that happened. How long ago was that? If you don't mind me asking, was that like before college, before high school or? Uh, that was right out of high school. OK out of high school, I came down here with, with big sister, uh, went to university here in Georgia and, um, decided that I would stay after I graduated. So, um, I, I started my law enforcement career, you know, very shortly after that. So I've been here, I've been in law enforcement 28 years total. I'll be 29 this year. So I've been a Georgia peach now for a little over 30 years. Yeah, so you've been in Georgia. You've been a Georgia peach longer than you were a Yankee. So, yeah, yeah, officially, you're absolutely yeah. right. You still got people in in, uh, in up north in New York or anywhere like that? Uh, up north in the Illinois area, and when I go home, it's uh, I go home regularly, and uh, they tell me that I still sound weird. <laughs> and then I'm in Georgia, and they tell me I still sound a little weird. So yeah. everybody don't quite belong in either place, but I've definitely developed my own draw. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that uh, Georgia has won me over. I've become a peach. There you go. It's kind of a, a Southern draw with a with a New York accent mixed into it. So that's what makes it sound a little different. huh? Something. They tell me it sounds awful. <laughs> sounds <laughs> so awful. Like, where, are you, where are you from? What is that? What is huh? that accent? You know? <laughs> All right. And uh, since you've been there so long, you have a family now. Do you, uh, you have more people down there with you? Yeah. I, you know, what's funny is that um, after some of us started coming south and bragging about being able to barbecue outside for Thanksgiving and Christmas, we had more family come and they wanted to check it out. And they're like, you know what? I'm never going back to the cold. I'm not going back. So they all just started moving after retirement. So I have cousins here now. Um, I have siblings. Uh, one of my parents actually moved to the south. So we've really uh, set up shop here for within that 30 years. So yeah. absolutely. And one of the reasons that I decided that um, I wanted to, you know, go to the highest level of law enforcement, I guess, that I could within the state of Georgia is because I did decide to have a family. So I knew that if I went any further, for example, if I decided to work for the feds, you know, you're you're going to move around. You're mm-hmm. going to change states. So one of the things I enjoyed about the Bureau is that, you know, the, the worst thing they could do is send me to the Georgia-Florida line and I could still drive anywhere I wanted to drive in Georgia within a day. Right. So I could get back home or, you know, get to visit mom. So that's what made me stay uh, with the agency. So what made you want to get into law enforcement in the first place? Was that always your dream or? Well, um, you know, I'll tell you, growing up, you know, south of Chicago, um, one of the things you, you learn early on is that, uh, at least that I learned early on, is, um, you know, that can be the jungle as well. You know, we joked a little bit earlier about, you know, different parts of California, L.A., uh, and things like that. And, you know, it's no secret that we've got some rough characters, 
you know, in the Chicago area. Yep. Like I said, I was south of that area. And, uh, you know, I saw it all, you know, growing up. Um, I am really, really hard on the kids. You know, we, we, we share something in common as it relates with the kids. They are my priority. They're my mission in life, you know, is saving these kids, these young people. And um, I give them a hard time because when they try to tell me that, you know, this is the lot that they've been given or individuals try to tell me these children don't know any better. This is what they grew up around. This was their environment. Your environment does play a significant part, can play a significant part in who you become. But I am living proof that your zip code, as they say, does not, you know, define who you are or where you're going. So, I grew up around things that I didn't know weren't normal, you know, in high school, you know, you couldn't go to, you know, a friend's birthday, you know, house party, if you will, without bullets flying over your head by the end of the night. And, you know, if we if we made it to the car and made it home alive that night, it was funny. Right. So this is crazy. I'm just having real talk with you. You know, like, oh, my gosh, did you see that? And, yeah, those guys always come and, you know, they, they always come and crash the party and nobody can have any fun. But did not realize that that really isn't the way you're supposed to live, you know? Um, I had just kind of accepted that as the norm. But I will tell you that um, I watched a lot of things happen, you know, to a lot of friends who fell by the wayside. Um, They didn't make it out. And I have a best friend to this day who lives in Tennessee, and we often talk about how blessed we are. Now we know it definitely was a blessing that we made it out. You know, we made it out alive and we talk about it. We laugh about it now. But the reality is the the ones that didn't make it, that went to school with us, they had the same opportunity, you know, to do something different. You know, we were around people that, you know, sold drugs and carried guns and um, all of these different things. And everybody kind of ended up going their own way. But the common core that we did have was that good upbringing. I wasn't going home with a gun. You know what I mean? I wasn't going home with things that didn't belong to me. I had the nosy, you know, parent that was going to ask me, well, where'd that come from? There you go. I wasn't the child that could bring a bike home. And my mom, who was a single parent, hadn't bought that bike or my dad hadn't sent it home with me. There were going to be questions. So I knew that. I understood that. And, you know, I give credit to my parents to this day for making me the upstanding citizen that I am because there are just certain things that weren't allowed. You know what I mean? And uh, I had the same opportunities to um, get involved in all of the, the, the chaos and the negativity that was going on around me that I look now and say, gosh, you know, how did I make it out? I knew I didn't have any other choice. I knew participating in, in uh, you know, drug parties or whatever you want to call it. It was just everything around us. I don't know how else to explain it to you. Yeah. I could have been strung out like many of my classmates that ended up that way and they died. I could have been in a game. I could have died, you know, execution style, found in a ditch like one of my close friends, you know, because they were dealing with mm-hmm. drugs and gangs and that, that those turf wars and all these things that were around us. And we chose to do something different and we didn't know any better. We were kids. It was like, well, that they might do bad things, but they're our friends, <laughs> you know? Right. People that I would never consider associating with now, but we walked away from it. 
we walked away from it. So I tell young people every day that you have a choice. I don't care what's going on at your school. I don't care what's going on in your house. I don't care what's going on on your block. You have a choice. So I give them purity heck. It's not an option to tell me that you don't have any options. You know, I grew up in a single a single family home, single mom, you know, single parent raised me along with my two siblings, you know, and she made sure we got our education. She knew what she had in store for us, even when we didn't understand. And we were able to put all that to use at a later time as adults. And, and we made it out. You know, we've all gone on to do great things, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> nice, nice. But uh, you decided to go into law enforcement. How did, how did that go over with the rest of the family and the people you knew? It, it didn't. Like, I'm the only one in my whole family, all the generations that decided to become a cop. And uh, I guess where I was going with that story is early on, I decided, you know, I'm either going to be part of the problem or part of the solution. Or to me, it's just a, that's what's going to happen growing up in that environment. And uh, I decided that I wanted to be part of the solution. I didn't like a lot of things that I saw and I set my sights uh, probably maybe about high school is when I knew that I wanted to be in law enforcement. And this was the thing. It had nothing to do with carrying a gun or a badge. It had nothing to do with putting people in jail. It was all about helping. It was about helping and having the authority to be able to help and make a difference. Uh, As crazy as it sounds, you know, you know it. A lot of people yeah. that, you know, took this profession on, we really can't explain it because we certainly didn't do it for the money, right? Right. Our parents, especially those of us that were fortunate enough to go to college and university. Um, that's not what they were thinking, I don't think, when they initially sent us to school. My mm. father, I'm a daddy's girl, and I still am. <laughs> and my father just... Uh, he wasn't sure at all about this. And my mother made it very clear to him that this child's going to do whatever. She's just that kid. You know, she's driven. And if she makes up her mind about something, that's probably what she's going to do. I probably was a little bullheaded. Got it from her. I have it very honest. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. And I started right out of, uh, as a matter of fact, when I moved down here and started in university, I worked. I always worked. Mm-hmm. I worked college. You know, I, I've never had a break, you know, in service as it relates to not having a job. So some of these things I just don't understand that we're doing nowadays in our society because I have never uh, been without work. Not that that's a bad thing. Circumstances happen. I just don't understand that. So I worked as a security guard while I was in college, okay. you know, because I was still working towards that field. And I sat in a hut you know, 12 hour shifts at night and went to school during the day, you know, on the, on the lookout, you know, to make sure nothing was <laughs> uh-huh. going down company. And uh, I mean, the rest was history. It really was. Nice. And then you got into in law enforcement down there in Georgia. Uh, how was your interactions with the, uh, with the community, uh, you know, being an African-American female in law enforcement in Georgia at that time? You know, even before I was a mama, You know, I was told that it's, you know, I always had that kind of that black mama thing going when I came on the scene, I guess because of who my black mama was and she just didn't mess around, you know. So I would find myself explaining to people, especially young people, I was always drawn to the kids, you know, about why this is, you know, you have a choice. There's a better way. 
And and I always remember that, um, you know, no matter what you do, no matter what you have, what you attain in life, you always treat every individual with dignity and respect. That was instilled in me. So I was also known for being, you know, that nice cop. You know, even when I was a deputy and I was in uniform, you know, I always had something for the kids. Um, I always had some words of encouragement. You know, that's a little strange. Some people see, see that as strange. It didn't matter to me what you did, um, what you were accused of. Um, I always had words of encouragement and I was always kind to people. And, you know, in law enforcement as a whole, it doesn't matter what race you are. But, you know, some people have the wrong idea of, you know, well, if you're kind to people, they'll see that as a weakness. Mm -hmm. I believe that if I'm kind to you, you might just be kind to me. Right. So no doubt, no doubt. And with everything that's going on in the, in the nation now with the George Floyd and the, and the protests and all that, uh, have you guys in, in uh, GBI been getting involved in investigations and things of that nature? Well, obviously, by the nature of, of what we do as an assist agency, as I mentioned to you, um, you know, we had our own situation here that's actually under investigation um, that we obviously don't discuss. But Ahmad Arbery happened right here in Georgia. That's right. So we're dealing with the fallout of that um, every single day. But I will tell you, um, and not just because I'm partial to my agency, but the feedback and the overwhelming support from the community towards our agency and our director for the swift action we did take has been overwhelming. So I feel like there's hope. Um, I I definitely feel like there's hope. Uh, One of the messages that we came out with very early when our director had the initial press conference was give us an opportunity. You know, we've been given this investigation to take a look into it and we're, we are finders of fact and we're going to seek the truth wherever the evidence leads us. And uh, by now you and everybody across the nation knows that it was less than 48 hours before we had the individuals in custody that were responsible for Ahmaud Arbery's death. And that's how we approach every investigation, um, fair and impartial. So it certainly has had an impact on us um, as an agency. It's had an impact on me, you know, just as an agent and being law enforcement in the community. And right about now, you know, as as you tell the story so well, being black while wearing the blue um, has its own challenges right now. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you gotten any of those those challenges up front uh, from the community, from from coworkers, um, not just in regards to this case, but, uh, you know, recently because of, you know, we've got this divide. Um, either you're with us or you're you're against this type of thing. Absolutely. And I and I don't know. Um, I don't have one friend, one one coworker. You know, I have friends. I travel the country. Um, I'm part of a a national organization, uh, you know, Brotherhood, Sisterhood, if you will, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. And um, we're we're a nationwide organization that is constantly trying to be the conscience of law enforcement. You know, we want to raise that bar. It's not about race. Uh, that happens to be the name of the organization as it was founded. But we have members that are all ethnicities, backgrounds. We have white chiefs, white sheriffs that are a part of our organization. And um, it's all about law enforcement being their best, 
you know, we want to raise the bar with the professionalism, the training. We provide cut, cutting edge training. So all of our law enforcement are trained, you know, at a basic minimum level. You know, we, we sit at the table at the White House whenever we're talking about criminal justice reform. So um, I take that very seriously. So I've been getting calls from all across the country. I do a lot of training overseas in some of the Caribbean islands. Our brothers and sisters over there are sending us love, you know, just telling us they're feeling our pain with what we're going through. So we have our own sessions where we kind of talk with each other. We chop it up and we, you know, we kind of, you know, we vent to each other about uh, some of the things that are going on. Um, Some of the law enforcement brothers and sisters that are of color are having these debates within their own family now. You know, your family comes at you or they feel like you just don't understand because you're one of them. And then you have to remind them, no, first of all, I'm me. But you have to remember I was born black first. You know? No doubt. Um, we all, I don't know any law enforcement officer that's of color that has not experienced something all of their own. You know, I've been profiled before. It didn't feel good. So I understand why it's so important to make sure that we are all each other's conscience, if you will. Yeah. Right. Um, if you see somebody doing something that's that's out of character, out of policy, it's your job to speak up. I'm fortunate. I, I will tell you, you know, um, no agency is perfect. But within the agency that I work for, I have been so incredibly proud that I have never experienced a situation where um, I felt like um, an agent, a special agent within my organization needed to be checked for their behavior um, or they exhibited any racist behavior or they treated anyone different or any family different. You know, um, you yourself may be familiar with, I can think of a a case that I worked where this, this young man was, uh, he was a, a really big drug dealer in his community, but he was kind of known as the Robin Hood. He did a lot of uh, perceived good within his community with the the proceeds that he made from his illegal drug trade, right? Mm -hmm. He took care of the elderly, took care of the children. So in his community, I mean, he was a hero in in his own rights, right? Um, I have been, I have heard of conversations, you know, in different parts of the country where you could be working really hard to solve a case uh, where somebody's been murdered, such as a drug dealer, and you know, you're watching the movies where somebody says, Oh, that's one less drug dealer on the street. Let me tell you, I couldn't have been more proud of the men and women that worked under me at the time I was an assistant special agent in charge. They worked day and night, nonstop, around the clock, without fail, to solve that young man's murder as if it was one of their own family members. Um, And this was South Georgia. And again, you know, a lot of people just want to make the assumptions that when you go to the South, they just don't care about people of color. And and that's just not my experience. I honestly have to take a moment to say I couldn't have been more proud, you know, because outsiders will ask, you know, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why is this such a priority? Because everybody is a priority. No one has the right to take that life. That young man has a mother. Uh, That one in particular had a twin sister that I spent a lot of time with. He was found in um, a creek. He was found in water. 
And before we had gone to the family to tell them we had identified his body, I talked with his twin sister and she heard water the night before, the night of his killing. I'll never forget that. You know, that's they tell me about the bond that the twins have, but she was dreaming about water and she could hear water running in her ear. When we saw that young man's murder, we earned the respect of that community of color, even though the majority of the special agents working on that case were Caucasian. And that was probably, you know, that experience being the first time that that community really felt like law enforcement cared. I I was glad to be a part of that. You know, it it wasn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter who he was. Nobody had the right to take his life. So those are the stories that you don't hear about. Yeah. You know, when it comes to, you know, race relations and law enforcement uh, in the us versus them, you don't hear stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that happens daily all across this nation. And, uh, you know, I try to tell people in my in my passings that, yeah, the officers that care, uh, we do this as a job because that's what we want to. That's what we want to do. We want to help people. So, you know, when they ask, you know, why don't good officers speak out? They do. Why don't good officers, you know, care? And just like the story you just mentioned. We do. We do. It's just the media is not reporting on those. They, you know, it's not a juicy story. So, yeah, they want to. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, your mom and your dad were were good role models for you growing up. What about professionally? Did you have any professional role models that kind of helped you along the way? Oh, absolutely. So obviously uh, I mentioned Noble. Uh, They are, uh, I give Noble a lot of credit for, Uh, a lot of my professional development. I was a baby in the organization, okay? Like uh, 30 years ago, I wasn't even old enough to carry a weapon when I first came to Noble. I worked for um, a law enforcement agency head and I was clerking for him before I became a deputy, before I I was old enough to go to the academy and be able to, uh, you know, purchase bullets. You know, you have to be 21. Uh So um, I was able to go to an event they had and I was able to meet, you know, our first, you know, African-American female sheriff in the state of Georgia by the name of Jackie Barrett. And, um, you know, that was that was big. 30 years ago, that was big, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I was able to sit at the table with Miss Barrett, you know, and talk to her. And I remember meeting, you know, captains that were women of color that looked like me, uh, Rosie Robinson and Diane Jones. And I was able to sit amongst these greats, Beverly Harvard. You know, she was the the first uh, African-American female chief of police in Atlanta Metro Agency. And again, I told you I was from Illinois. Right. Yeah. So seeing that. So I was like, wow, they look like me. These are women doing great things. And they're women that look like me. And it solidified my foundation right then and there that I can do this. I actually can do this. You know, I can be a captain, you know, I can be a chief, I can be a sheriff. Before then, I knew that I wanted to be in law enforcement, but even I hadn't really, you know, it hadn't really sunk in. 
You know, mm-hmm. even though my family always taught me, my parents always taught me, you can be anything you set your, you know, your mind to, right? But sitting amongst these these women um, and, and men at the time, these greats, if you will, uh, it solidified something in me. It lit a fire, you know, and uh, that they become many of them became my mentors, my role models. Um, just not recently, Chief C.J. Davis, who's our national president of Noble. Um, she's an African-American female. She spoke so um, eloquently on Good, um, Good Morning America. She's one of my mentors. You know, I'm proud to call her a friend. And they absolutely, um, anytime I had issues or, or struggles just with my career and things that we face that nobody else faces, you know, these women had been through it. They had been through the fire. They were very encouraging. I can remember early on in my career um, being told that because I was the female in the office full of deputies that I had to make the coffee. Now, again, I was a coffee drinker, didn't think anything of it. I was just like, well, maybe they just like the way my coffee tastes, right? I was completely naive. And then about a year into it, I realized that that was the expectation for me to make the coffee for everybody because I was the woman in the office, right? Wow. And there was an important ceremony going on and everybody else got to attend or going to the courtroom with the judges and all. I was told, well, you just stay back and answer the phones. You know, um, things that I didn't really even understand because I was so young. I was 21 years old. I was a deputy. I didn't understand those things then until I got a little bit older. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, there are so many things that these women had already been through that when we get together, we have our conferences or our trainings once a year. We're able to sit around the table and talk to each other about how do you handle that next time? you know, the younger ladies that are coming up behind us, you know, and when I became a 10, 15, 20 year veteran, I'm able to talk to um, younger female officers, regardless of their color, about things of that nature. So, you know, a lot of times you hear African-American males talk about, you know, what all they go through. And we tell them, you know what, y'all, stop <laughs> whining. You forgot. Are you forgetting something? Look at this here. We're a double minority. Mm-hmm. I'm a female, you know, I'm a woman and I'm African-American. And and let's just throw this in there for kicks and giggles. I'm in a male dominated field, something that I'm just not supposed to be doing, you know, and there are still individuals that feel that way to this day, you know? Um, So we, we have, you know, it's kind of like the triple deal that we're up against at times, but I never let that deter me. And that's always my message to the younger women coming up behind me, regardless of color, that I never let that deter me and they shouldn't. Yeah. You know, I've noticed, uh, you know, with all these, you know, things going on nowadays and the defund the police, um, some people are talking about maybe we need more women in the profession uh, because it's male dominated. And if there were more women in the profession, you know, maybe some of these things wouldn't happen. What what do you think about that? I love it. (laughs) I love it. Um, I get tickled every time I see it because I think they've come to recognize the value that we have as women um, when it comes to chaos, right? There, There's a certain thing that a woman brings that, you know, it's, you know, we're nurturers, mm-hmm. right? We're problem solvers because that's what we do every day in our house. Right. Even if you're 
not law enforcement. You know, you've got kids, you know, you've got the husband, that's another kid and some certain, no, I'm just kidding, but that's another one of the kids. Watch it, watch it now. Right, right. You're always I'm not going to let my wife see this episode here. <laughs> you're always trying to balance that out, you know, and there's just something we bring to chaos and there's, there's, um, you know, I've said this and I, I'll say it here and, and the guys can get me for it. I tell them there's something about that testosterone that when it goes away, you know, um, having a male and female lead an effort or lead an agency, I have seen positive outcomes all the time because there's not that testosterone. That's the only thing I can equate it to when it comes to, you know, men and, you know, and that, uh-huh, you know, who's in charge. But I had obviously being a female supervisor and manager, um, I've always trailed behind a male, you know, in partnership uh, where I was the ASAC. I had male SACs and we had such a great partnership. There was never that. Um, they're, they're just I, I say you take the testosterone out of the room, half of the testosterone out of the room. And I always worked really well with my male counterparts when it came to supervising offices and operations. And I think that that's just part of part of being a woman. We're nurturers. We're problem solvers. We have a tendency to be able to bring people together and kind of sit them down. Uh, I told you that they had a they had a nickname for this thing. They call it the black mama. Some people would be offended by that. I never was, you know, I've had my my Caucasian counterparts say, hey, can you come over here and talk to these folks and do that thing you do? (laughs) And you know what? At that time, it was more important that we do the thing we do and we calm the masses. You understand? Yeah. And and I was happy to be able to bring that, Um, you know, it's just sometimes people will listen to us better. You know, they're not offended um, by the presence of a woman, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, we need to flip that switch. We can. Yeah. You know? Well, there, there's the opposite side of that. You got the, uh, uh, the Tyler Perry. I know, you know, the, the, the title of that movie, mad black woman, you know, that stereotype as well. So, uh, <laughs> it's there, yeah. it's there, you know, mm-hmm. again, like I said, you know, if you're assertive, uh, and you're aggressive when you need to be, you do run that risk. Um, of, of gaining that notoriety. Uh, I won't say that I haven't been guilty of uh, receiving that title in the past, but in those instances, I would do it all over again. I'm always willing to stand up for myself in the least of these, and I make no excuses about it. And, you know, going along to get along to be popular, uh, that's never been my thing. If somebody's being mistreated, um, I'm going to be that individual to to speak up. And, and that's not a popular place to be in. Oftentimes you're going to find yourself standing alone, but I do it again. Right. Now I was going to ask you, uh, you know, you coming up in the agency, did you notice any pushback with you being a female, not necessarily just being an African-American, but just being a female uh, working alongside males. And now you're this, their supervisor and, and kind of telling them what to do. You know what? I am so fortunate again. Um, I guess just because a lot of times I say God knows and he knows what's best. You know, he knows what's best for me, but probably knew what was best for them. (laughs) And I just did not I did not have that issue. You know, um, one of the things that those guys taught me, uh, particularly that that crew that I worked with for seven years, those uh, young men and women that solved that murder I was telling you about of that drug dealer, um, 
really quickly. Um, and it's like with any new boss, it doesn't matter what they look like, their background, you know, you got to kind of prove yourself to these folks, right? And one of the things they told me once uh, I started building those relationships, I earned their respect because they realized I wasn't willing to tell them to do anything that I wasn't doing myself, right? Yep. If we were in the stinky trenches, I was going to be in the stinky trenches with them. You know, I wasn't given orders from the deck. I was on the ground with them. I was in the battle with them. I was out hungry all night, you know, 24, 32 hours without sleep or food, but they always came first. You know, I I wasn't going to let anybody uh, do anything to deter them, whether it was, you know, sometimes, you know, our job as the leaders in the agency, you know, when you have a hot case or something high profile, you got to deal with the media, you got to deal with all the politicians. My job was to keep them away from my guys and girls and let them work. Um, Also, if we had to walk walk a dark neighborhood in the middle of the night where we didn't really want to be. I had a clipboard, you know, I would ask my guys, what is it that you need me to do to assist you? And I was not above canvassing a neighborhood. You know what I mean? Um, Whatever they needed me to do and always have their backs, you know, at the end of the night, you know, so somebody taught me that early in my career, you know, you take care of your horses and your troops and they're going to take care of you. They'll never let you down. Um, you know, these were times where, you know, we we didn't have budgets and, you know, big budgets. And, and, and with the state, there's not a lot of things you can do in terms of, you know, petty cashes and slush funds. We don't have that. I take those guys, even if it was just to a, a Waffle House or some kind of pancake house, the sun's coming up. We're still working. Hey, you guys, stop coming here and get you something to eat. I'm paying for it out of my pocket. And not that I've, you know, I've never told this story in, in many of my talks and interviews and such, because it's not about, you know, getting credit for that. I was doing what I knew I appreciated when I was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. And not because I had it like that. You know, at that point, I became a divorced single mom. That's a whole other segment. You know, 50 percent of us, you know, mm-hmm. our marriages end up in divorce. Um, some of you are more fortunate, obviously, but I felt that way about those guys and girls. They were my family. It was important that I took care of them, you know, and that's one of the things that I did not have to worry about. You know, the story goes, as they tell me later, that was one of the reasons that I earned their respect. They quickly realized I was willing to do the same things that I was asking them to do. And I was out there to support them. So there was no trouble, no struggle whatsoever um, with with uh, especially me being young and moving up. I will tell you that I had older males that were under my charge. And I never experienced any pushback. And and I, I have been grateful to those guys and girls ever since. That's great. That's great. So you mentioned uh, the section you work in. Is it uh, ch- uh, crimes against children? Is is that what you work? I I even even worse. Um, I don't deal with the cases of survivors. I only deal with deaths of children. Wow. Uh, ages zero to seventeen, under eighteen by statute in the state of Georgia. So this is my charge. It's my duty. Um, day in day out, five days a week. Yeah, it's terrible. So in that capacity, what's uh, what's one of the more rewarding parts of that job? Well, um, one of the things that I get to do, which is very unique, 
that I really love because a lot of people ask me this question. They say, well, you know, how do you how do you do this? How, how do you how do you deal with it? How do you do this every day? Um, this particular assignment um, I took on in 2014, uh, the governor gave us a particular charge um, as an agency to be responsible for overseeing these deaths, collecting information, looking at what's going on with the state of our kids in Georgia and what we can do to prevent it. And always being reactive, right? As a cop all these years, being an agent, investigator, um, I was finally able to look at, you know, the awful things that happen to our most vulnerable segment, right, of society, but also take that information is fuel for my fire to then determine what is it we're doing wrong, right? How can I influence policy at the level of, um, you know, the state, you know, policymakers, the governor's office, able to work really closely with them to make recommendations Mm -hmm. of things we could put in place to prevent these tragedies from occurring. And and that's everything too, Dale, from, you know, whether it's the the child abuse cases where, you know, children are harmed by their caregivers or their parents to uh, suicides um, of young people in Georgia. That is Right now, that is a serious problem that we're having um, where young people, younger and younger, we don't call them teen suicides anymore. We call them youth suicides because now we have the 10 and 11 and 12 year old kids who feel like their only option is to take their own lives because they feel that life as they know it is more painful living. Um, And it's very tragic. It's very sad. But the benefit is being able to get out and work as a a change agent to prevent these deaths from from occurring so they don't happen to another child. That's where the reward comes in at. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, what's one of the more challenging parts of your job? Not necessarily as an investigator in that section, but, you know, more as as a SAC. Well, again, uh, you know, we were, again, talking a little bit earlier about community as a whole, Um, whether you're talking about these cases, dealing with these children that I was just speaking of, um, whether we're talking about the way society views us um, as law enforcement as a whole, being the enemy, it's a communal problem. Um, It's something that, uh, again, my my director made me understand that we have to look at this as a communal issue. We need to try to get to the core, you know, and you hear, you, you know, you hear all the narratives that, you know, if this is the way a child was raised, this was their environment, you know, they didn't have a chance. But I just believe that that's that can be changed to say he didn't have a chance in hell. I'll tell you, if he had that one chance in hell, he can survive. Right. Yep. Um, mental health. We all know that this is no secret. It's not things that I'm telling you that, that you're not aware of or that the listeners wouldn't be aware of. But the number of cases that I have where mental health um, has impacted a child's life and determined that tragic outcome, whether it be uh, the death of a child by a parent who suffered from a mental health disorder and was not being treated or couldn't be treated because they fell through the gaps. You know, here in Atlanta, we have the case where a mother put her children in the oven. She suffered from mental illness. Okay, I see a lot of cases that come back to that. I see the children who've inherited that trait or that gene. Um, The the, you know, they say the apple doesn't fall far. It does run in the family. It can 
Um, you know, and I will tell you something, use this as an opportunity as people of color. I do struggle with that. When I talk about prevention initiatives, I struggle with the fact that if I have a young African-American boy who comes in and yes, boys are committing suicide at 10, 11 and 12 years years old, they come into a morgue for the autopsy. The first thing that I'm doing is I'm picking apart this child's life to figure out what opportunities were there to intervene that were missed. And I find out that there were always opportunities. Someone missed it. You know, we're taught, um, and and this is, I can talk about it because I'm Mm African-American. You know, it's taboo to say that uh, you want to go talk to a doctor. You're going to hear, Most likely, well, you know, we keep this in the family, you know, whatever it is, just abuse, you know, sexual abuse that runs rampant, you know, in our community. And we're taught that, you know, it may have been the uncle, you know, that distant uncle in the family that everybody knew he wasn't quite right. And he's touched some kids and and we're told that that's a family secret that can't happen anymore. You know, that uncle may have needed the mental health attention because of something that happened to him when he was young, but the victimization continues. That's my point. It's a cycle. A young black boy who is having thoughts of suicide or he's depressed or he maybe is being bullied at school because he's taught that he needs to be macho and boys don't cry. And all of these other things that, that we sow into some of our kids, it's wrong. It's wrong, you know, well, we're going to pray about it. Well, you know what? One of the things that I do that's not really popular when I do my talks for suicide prevention to parents uh, and educators and teachers, um, stop telling folks that, you know, they only need to go see the pastor when they're depressed, you Mm -hmm. know, or they're having um, mental health and anxiety issues. They also need to see a doctor. There's nothing wrong with the pastor praying for me, but I also need that professional help, right? Because that child, that mother who's suffering from postpartum depression, you know, that 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 father who's lost his job because of this pandemic and doesn't know how he's going to feed his kids. He has anxiety. Mm -hmm. Right. He may be depressed. He may have anger issues. There is nothing wrong with seeking professional help. I encourage it because sometimes we just need some people just need somebody to talk to to tell them it is okay. What you're feeling is okay. Some people may have a more serious level of an illness that needs to be treated with medication. We have got to stop, you know, with that taboo about seeking help, professional help, when you're suffering from stress, anxiety, and a mental or, or a mental illness of some type. I can't diagnose you, even as your parent, right? I can't diagnose my child. I need to take my child to a doctor to be able to seek help. So I always encourage parents, if your child's struggling, they're going through a tough time in their life and you start seeing pattern changes or behavior changes, it is not your job to be the expert. I don't expect you to be a doctor, but I do expect you to take that child to talk to somebody so they can tell you, mom, this is just a rough patch. I think they'll be okay. Or this is something more serious. Facts. Facts right there. Yeah. So this is tough to to deal with it on a daily basis. How much longer do you think you... You're going to be doing this? You know, that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, 
this last assignment um, of my, you know, of my career possibly where I have this unique opportunity to get out in front and try to change these outcomes in the lives of these children um, has impacted me um, over the last seven years in words that I can't describe. So I know regardless of what I'm doing, I'll go on to continue um, this work. But, you know, I do get that question that, you know, gosh, this has got to be frustrating or, you know, I go down to the to the morgue and I see a 10 year old child who's been shot and killed by his brother accidentally because they were curious little boys and they were playing with a weapon that was in the house. And it turns out the weapon was in the house, belonged to the uncle who was a convicted felon and didn't have the right to have that weapon. Those are the things that make me angry, keep me up at night because they're considered to be preventable. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with that, Dale? We in turn talk about educating families, right? If I could just turn around that mindset that it probably wouldn't happen to me. You know, my toddler is probably not going to find that gun that's under the sofa, you know, because when mom's boyfriend comes home at night, he slides the gun underneath the sofa and they just don't expect, they don't intend for these tragedies to occur, but we call them preventable tragedies. Uh, some people call them accidents. I call them preventable deaths. So I'm constantly thinking about ways to make people rethink what they're doing, rethink your behavior, because that mother never woke up that day thinking that that was the last day that she was going to see her child in these circumstances where these preventable deaths occur. So children are going to get sick. They're going to die. You're going to have motor vehicle accidents. Yep. Kids are going to die, right? Um, the frustrated mom who's suffering from postpartum depression and harms her infant by shaking them to death probably could have been prevented if somebody would have gotten mom some help, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody saw mom possibly you know, crying, saying, I just can't take it anymore. I can't take the crying. These are normal feelings that mothers feel guilt about. And they don't even know that they, we have a, we have a name for this. It's postpartum depression. You know, dad goes to work and say, well, I know she's been crying every night, but I thought she would get past it. I thought it was a rough patch. My life's mission now is to educate families, friends, anybody that comes in contact with, the, with these children or their parents um, to make sure they know what these things look like, right? Before they rear their ugly heads and it's too late. So now I'm just committed to educating uh, families, you know, all, all, all walks of what it looks like mm -hmm. um, and, and hoping that we can prevent um, deaths of these kids. You know, they always say if you could save one, but I think we can save so many more. Right. Definitely. Facts. So when you're not working and you're not dealing with this type of stuff, what do you like to do when you're not working? I dig in the dirt. <laughs> you dig, in, dig the dirt. in the dirt? Your gardener? Yeah. What is that? My my grandmother, got rest her soul, got me into uh, doing a little bit of gardening. And I'm like, uh, I'm not really an outdoors person. I don't like getting dirty and uh, never thought that I would enjoy digging in the dirt. She had a green thumb. She taught me how to repot a plant. Um, then she passed away on me and she had all these amazing flowers in this garden, uh, in this house I had bought her and moved my grandmother to Georgia. I don't think I mentioned that. Moved her out of the cold of Illinois, moved her here and uh, was able to enjoy those last years with her and made sure that she had plenty of gardening space, right? So in Georgia, we have that red clay, if you've heard about it. Well, this house had topsoil. It was black dirt. 
like I'm used to in Illinois. She loved it. And she grew all these amazing plants and flowers. So um, by default, I had to take care of them when she left me here on this earth by myself. So she turned me into a gardener, but I found out that it was so rewarding. I don't think about work. I don't think about kids in the morgue. You know, I don't think about what's happening all around when I'm digging in the dirt. So I was like, hey, this works. And it's healthier than all the other things that law enforcement typically do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm candid. It's no secret. We have, you know, we have high rates of alcoholism and, and drug abuse and domestic violence and all of those things. So um, uh, digging in the dirt is just a healthy way to forget about everything uh, and not get yourself in any trouble. <laughs> Are you doing uh, just like plants? Are you doing uh, vegetables and fruits too? Or what are you doing? I'm not a gardener because that requires a little bit too much work. I'll be ready for that when I retire. I I like to uh, repot plants. I like to have the plants in the house that are a little challenging, you know, require a little attention. I love to put things outside and watch them grow. You know, I I love to watch God's process, you know, where you, you, it's almost like bringing life. You know, and like, wow, this works. And if I put some water on it and the sun comes up tomorrow, it's going to respond. So it's like you, too, can do this, you know, and then they didn't die. So I love it. I love uh, planting things outside. I love planting containers. And it just, you know, it just takes it just takes it all away just for those few moments. You know, so it gets a little bit physical. You can sweat a little bit. Um, some, some officers are gym rats. Uh, I wish I was, but I haven't gotten into that yet. (laughs) So I do other things, you know, I'm, you know, praying and meditating is also something that, that helps me because I, I, a lot of people ask me, how do you deal with this? This is awful. And you see babies who've been suffocated because, uh, folks are sleeping with their kids. I could just go on and on and on. I know I can't, but you know, don't sleep with your babies. It's very dangerous to put a newborn infant in the bed with you at night, put them in a crib. So I get to see the worst of the worst, but then I take it, as you mentioned, and and it becomes fuel to say, how can I make sure this doesn't happen again? All right. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, everything that you've laid on us today. Makes us think, makes us think. I know when you just say right now about your gardening, that you said that, you know, you like to plant it, water it, and see that it grows and see a little symbolism there between uh, that and what you do at work, you know, kind of nurturing and all that. So it's good stuff. Well, I appreciate it. Opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity. I didn't realize it, but this was great. This was therapy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? this, yeah this, this I, I'm doing therapy. my part, doing my part. Yes, you are. Yeah. You know, I can just, you know, we just get on zoom once a month or something. There just, you, you know, you know, yeah. send me a bill if yeah. you like. <laughs> Well, we're not done yet. I got a little game I like to play with my guests before I let them go. So let me set this up here for you. This is a game I like to call. We are family. Get up, everybody, insane. We fam. We fam. So I'm just going to name a couple people for you. A couple, whether or not they're related, you tell me. Uh, so here's an example. If I were to say Diana Ross and Tracy Ellis Ross, you would say... Real fam. Real fam. You would say real fam, and then I would give you a, you would be correct. But if I were to say Marsha Brady and Greg Brady, you would say faux fam, right? Because faux, faux fam, right? And I don't watch that much TV. I'm going to lose. Well, Greg, <laughs> well, the Brady Bunch is from way back in the day. I'm, I'm sure you do that. So, Are you aging me? 
Are you aging? No, me? no, no. I used to watch the great the Brady Bunch too, so I'm aging myself. All right. So Let's some of these that. are real people, you know, in the world like Tracy and Diana. So uh pretty easy there. Okay, here's your first right. one here. Uh Lenny Kravitz and Al Roker. What do you think? Are they real fam or faux fam? Wow, that's gotta be faux fam. Uh, you would be wrong. Lenny Kravitz what? and Al Roker are cousins. You are kidding me. No, they are cousins. <laughs> now that's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> All right, here's another one for you. Richie and Joni Cunningham. That's faux fam. I did watch that show. Yeah. You were right on that. Yes, that was from Happy Days. They were siblings on Happy Days. Yeah, see, one for one. One and one. How about your next one here? Alex and Mallory Keaton. Oh, man. Let me see. Uh, those are, are those some stars in a movie uh, or a husband and wife, maybe. Let's say real fam. Oh, they're full fam as well. That's uh, from uh, Family Ties. You ever watch that show? I mean, no, but it sounded familiar. Like, that sounds like a family <laughs> show, maybe, but he's trying to trick me. No. Okay, here's your next one Denzel and John David Washington. I don't know who the heck John David Washington is. Uh, let's see. Real fam. They are real fam. They're father and son. You know, uh, John David Washington? He played in, uh, what was that, uh, the Spike Lee movie where they were, when he was uh, undercover in the Klan? I just told you I didn't watch movies. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. I don't watch TV. Yeah. I dig in the dirt. <laughs> have, you, have you seen that face before, though? Yes, I have. Okay, I that's have. that's John David Washington. That's so Denzel's he son. He infiltrated the Klan. Yeah, that movie. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, I did watch yeah. it. Your next one here, Nicolas Cage and Francis Ford Coppola. I know who Nicolas Cage is. I'm going to say they're going to be some kind of real fam. They are. Francis Ford Coppola is Nicolas Cage's uncle. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's... All right, your next one, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Uh, they play along side by side in movies. I know those guys, so that's faux fam. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, they're just best friends. They're best. They came up together in the acting community. They are faux fam. They are best friends, though. A couple more for you. How about Arnold and Willis Jackson? What you talking about, Willis? Yes, and That's they are. Faux fam. They are faux fam. Yes, siblings on different strokes. You remember that show? Um, how about Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt? I got a feeling I heard something about that. They might be real fam. They are real fam. I'll go back. Yep. That's uh, their mother and son. Yeah. 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 You can kind of see the resemblance there. Kind of. Kind of. And yeah. your last one here, how about Jamal and Hakeem Lyon? You probably won't get this one because you say you don't watch TV, but take a stab at it. Fam. Faux fam. Faux fam. That is correct. That, That's man. the siblings from Empire. You ever watch that show? I have watched it once and I was done. <laughs> okay, well, I think you got more right than you got wrong. So let's All I do is win. call you the winner.
never win anything. Yeah, you so won. You won today. You won today. All right, let me stop this. All right, thank you for playing along with that. That was <laughs> that was fun. So you got through it. Yeah, I really don't play games. So actually, you got me to play a game. That was pretty significant. Yeah. <laughs> and I won. And I won. All right. Well, thank you again, Trevor, for uh, coming on with me and, and having some fun and spreading some knowledge and all that good stuff. Uh, again, you work for, is, is there a, a hotline or a website or something that we can reach uh, the GBI and learn about suicide prevention or anything like that? Absolutely. You know, if you if you Google Georgia Child Fatality Review, um, it'll take you not only to our Web page, but our YouTube page which most importantly, that's where my suicide prevention videos lie. There are clips uh, for kids, um, by kids. Um, There's one for the adults, for the parents, but there are children talking about their experiences, why they no longer wanted to live, but more importantly, why they found hope. And these are real kids from our community that struggled. Um, and, And I couldn't be more proud of that particular project we worked on. You know, kids are texters, they're YouTubers. So as a parent, if you have a kid who's struggling, go find that link. They're 30 seconds. Um, They're all the way up to 17 minutes. Send it to them and it could definitely impact their life. So thank you for giving me that opportunity to shout out those prevention initiatives and those videos. No doubt. And uh, I thank you once again. Be safe out there in Georgia. Um, Wash your hands, wear your mask, social distance and all that. And uh, we'll talk soon. Appreciate you. Thank you. You got it. All right, Square Pegs, that's it for this episode of the Black and Blue Podcast. I want to thank my guest today, Special Agent in Charge Trevor Randall of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation for joining me on this episode. I appreciate your leadership and your mentorship. Keep doing your thing out there in the Peach State. We need more leaders just like you. And if you guys out there appreciate this sort of content as well, make sure you like and subscribe to the show on the Black and Blue Podcast YouTube channel or wherever you choose to get your podcast. I'll be back next week with another fun-filled episode. Same black time, same black channel. But until then, y'all know what to do. Stay black and blue. I'll holler at you. Peace. This has been a Major D Entertainment presentation.